what's the worst thing that can happen during my operation? I said, I think the worst thing that can happen during your operation is that I could die. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. It's a huge shout out to Marina Medical for enabling the April Indonesial Rhinoplasty Podcast. Thank you for supporting us. But we're not just going to limit ourselves to Indonesial stuff today. We have one of the eldest statesmen of Rhinoplasty on the show. It's a huge privilege and honor to welcome Prof. Norman Postrick. Thank you so much for your time and being on the show today. Oh, thank you, Cameron. It's really good to be here. Thank you for asking me. So, so Prof. Norman, just to kind of put us in the picture, we've got listeners from all over the globe. Tell us where are you at the moment and, and where are you speaking to us from? I'm in uh, New York on Park Avenue at my office and uh, freezing to death here. It's two degrees above zero outside. And okay, so then my next question is, how did you end up where you are now? What was your journey through rhinoplasty? First of all, I was was born in Moline, Illinois. It's a small town in the middle of uh, the Midwest. farming community, but this was an industrial site. And my my parents, who were immigrants, one from Czechoslovakia and one from Italy, uh, came to Chicago, got married, and then moved to this small town because my father was in, in manufacturing, working. And that's how I ended up in Moline. Went to a small college in my town there, and then I went to to medical school at the University of Illinois on a scholarship. Spent four years there. Went did an internship in San Francisco at the San Francisco General Hospital. Went, came back to University of Illinois for a four-year residency in otolaryngology. Finished that. Spent two years in active duty in the Navy at the St. Albans Naval Hospital here in New York. When I finished, I was supposed to go back to Chicago to, uh, to a practice there with Dr. Tardy. But I just fell in love with New York and decided to stay here. So I originally went in with two head and neck surgeons in Westchester County. And uh, and after about seven years, moved out on my own into official press, official plastic surgery practice. Wow. Uh, but it's quite something. Imagine yourself and Eugene Toddy being in a practice together. I mean, there would be nobody else doing rhinoplasty in North America. <laughs> Well, I did pretty well in New York on my own. I think Tardy was upset that I didn't come back, but he forgave me because I, we were good friends. That's great. Eh? And um, what is it that, that drew you towards rhinoplasty? Well, when I first went into practice, uh, I was doing facial plastic surgery, but I also was doing head and neck surgery, and I was doing facial reconstructive surgery, and I was doing facial trauma. I was even doing otology. And, uh, but the first day I was in practice, patient came in with nasal obstruction and I booked a rhinoplasty. So I started doing a lot of facial plastic surgery and that it really got tremendous as years went by. By the time I got to seven years in practice, uh, I felt I was, I could do just facial plastic surgery alone. So I left that practice, opened a practice in Westchester County and then eventually moved to New York City. Wow. And that first rhinoplasty you did, can you still remember that? Oh, I remember it well. It was a lovely Hispanic girl with, thank God, relatively nice skin, a little bump, a little width in her tip. And uh, I was fortunate to have really good teachers. There's a Dr. Morrison Beers, who, who was at that time the first president of the Plastic Surgery Society, Aesthetic Society. He was helping me do the operation. And uh, I remember taking the bandage off in the clinic and having her be ecstatic. And maybe I was more excited than she, she was. <laughs> but it just, it just hit me like a ton of bricks. I fell in love with rhinoplasty. Wow. And it just never went away. Wow. And, and, and now, I mean, these decades and decades of operating. Some of the younger patients you've been operating to, some of the older patients, what, what kind of extremes have they been for you? Well, yeah, about 
few years after I began on my own, I, the, uh, the parents of a 12 year old brought her in for rhinoplasty. And I thought, this she's way too young. She's small for her age. She had an enormous nose. I talked to the pediatrician who referred her and said, she's really having a lot of trouble at school. Maybe you should talk to her pediatric psychiatrist. So I called her and I said, look, I've got a young lady here that wants rhinoplasty, but she's really just too young. She said, look, if there ever was a psychiatric pediatric emergency for rhinoplasty, this is it. This kid is falling off the cliff because she's been aligned at school, bullied, and I'm afraid I'm going to lose her. So I went ahead and did the operation on a general anesthesia. I think I took away a third of her nose. Wow. And it, it looked good. Thank God. You know, at that age, the skin is so elastic that you can take away a massive hump and everything just contracts right over. So mm -hmm. she looked good. But because the bullying they were afraid was still going to go on, the family actually picked up and moved to another city farther away. She started a new school and everything went away. It was wow. a success. And she was not like impaired. And uh, so it was, it was a risk of my part. And so for a few years afterwards, the family stopped coming back and said she's fine. Everything's happened. That's awesome, eh? The wow. oldest patient. And, and in terms of on the other side of the spectrum? A 76-year-old woman came in for rhinoplasty. Wow. She didn't want any facial rejuvenation surgery. She didn't want her eyelids, her face. I just, I've always wanted my nose done. I said, why did you wait so long? You know, honey, you're 76 years old. She said, well, finally, everybody that was against it is dead. <laughs> well, but this is the best reason for a rhinoplasty that I ever heard. So we went ahead. I took great care because she had fragile bones. And she, she was happy with her nose for many years afterwards. That's a great day. <laughs> That's a great story. And... Um, so a low moment in your career, um, like a, an outcome that was just not great. Or, and, and how do you tie to this is my question that I want to ask you is about resilience. To stay in the game for so many decades and teach so much and work. You know, the second part of this is, is when the things are down and it's difficult, what do you do to pick yourself up again and keep balance in your life? Well, I'll tell you, first of all, I'll tell you about one of my best rhinoplasty results. Yeah, okay, okay, good idea. <laughs> yeah, you know, because I think some good things happened. The 22-year-old uh, came in with her mother. She was a model, a runway model. They with her mother, her photographer, and her agent. And the mother did most of the talking, and they wanted her to jump into print media. And... Uh, she was a beautiful girl except for her nose. I mean, she had great hair, eyes, skin. Uh, but there was a, uh, the nose was up a little bit too high. The vertical dome height on both sides was too much. She had very deep, soft triangles. So at surgery, I brought the domes together, took away all but four millimeters of the domes, uh, took a big piece of the posterior septal angle away to drop the tip, and filled the soft triangles with morselized cartilage scraps. And in baseball terms, I mean, I hit it out of the park. It yes. was beautiful. But she never, she never did get into print and media modeling. I mean, the competition in New York is really fierce. Yes. But I saw the mother a couple of years later. She told me that her daughter had married a Fortune 500 CEO. So she thought... It was a good trade, and my operation was a success. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some interesting things about my experience. I have a relatively large Orthodox community, five patient population. Yeah. And I'm Episcopalian myself, but I, I have a contact in the Orthodox community, and I see a lot of patients from there. And they're really interesting. I, I love them. They're unbelievably good patients. The family will come in with a patient for rhinoplasty. And I did the other one of the other daughters maybe two years ago. And they never come back. 
pulls up. They get the bandage off, and that's the end of it. Wow. And they say, well, where's Sarah? And I haven't seen Sarah. I did, you know, I, I would like to see how, how it worked out, take some pictures. And the first thing is they dig out the pictures of their wedding. And they say, here's Sarah, and here's her wedding pictures. So that's great. And here are her two kids. So the operation was a success. <laughs> now, let's talk about Esther, what we're going to do for her. And so, yeah. But they never come back, rarely. So it's interesting. Well, like some people just not never stop coming back. Yes. And these people are just delighted and happy with what, I, what I've given them. They, they don't show up again. Wow. Um, worst outcomes. Yes. A couple of patients come to mind. One was a girl I saw a number of years ago with a, about 28 years old, deep radix, projecting hump, sharp hump, just projecting way out from her nose, and a very bad projection or two. I thought this was a really tough case to do. And uh, I took it on, and at surgery, I got the hump down, got the hump down, got the hump down, put in a really big radix strap to help with what hump I had left, and then projected the tip forward with a strut, and it looked great. I got a straight nose, and I was really happy and thrilled because it was more than I thought I could get for her. Took the bandage off. She was very happy. I saw her at the two-month visit. Still pretty happy. And then she was lost to follow-up. And I got an email from her about a year and a half later said that she had made a big mistake and wanted her old nose back. So I missed something somewhere. Yeah, I told her yeah, I don't do bump backs operations. If she really wanted her nose done again, she'd have to find somebody who do does uh, rib graft. I'd be happy to send her pictures of her before result before I did the operation before us. And I never heard from her again. But I was just so disappointed in that it was a ridiculously difficult case, and I got a ridiculously good result. But somewhere along the line, she decided that. It wasn't for her. Wow. That was one case. It was a great result and a poison. And another patient comes to mind. One of the most difficult cases I've ever had was a 49-year-old female who is a CEO of a publication company here in New York, recently divorced, projecting nose, very deep uh, reverse curves in the lower lateral cartilages. And she just wanted to start dating again. And she wanted to look better. I did a nice operation, gave our battens, reduced the uh, projection radix graft. She called me on the fifth day and said that her nose was a little pink and she was having a little pain. So I put her on an antibiotic. Saw her on the sixth day for a split off, and she just looked terrible. She had tremendous redness of her skin, mm -hmm. was weeping and terribly swollen. I put her on a different antibiotic, got a lot of cultures, set him off for like an emergency, got an infectious disease person involved, and she had MRSA, methicillin-resistant staph aureus, but not just a regular infection, but one that was volatile and aggressive and didn't respond to anything except Zyvox, which is a third-generation, third-tier, enormously expensive drug. Everybody got really excited, even more than I did. And uh, the New York, New York State Department of Health got involved because this was a virulent infection. Yeah. And they went in and tested everybody in her, in her household, her cleaning lady, her help around the house, her neighbors, her contacts. They didn't pick it up anywhere else. But she settled down over a period of weeks. And my infectious disease person was helping me cultured MRSA on every aspect of her body, in her hair, in her armpits. Unbelievable. She was a carrier that is just blindsided. We got it all settled down, got rid of the infection, but then I got to see the destructiveness of the infection. Her right dome was completely gone. All the grafts are gone. The anterior front half of her lower lateral cartilage on the right side is gone. So instead of, you know, a nice... Buoyant tip, she had a huge dent right there. And 
MRSA infections, when they're that severe, cause a bogginess in the subcutaneous area that's just like chamois thick. So we waited almost a year to make sure she was clear and uh, make sure that she uh, would do the operation. She was just desperately for some help, but she was afraid that she was going to get another infection. Yeah. And I was too, so simply, so we got everything organized. And there was, a, there was a lot riding on this because here she was with this terrible deformity looking much worse than her original deformity. Yeah. And they put it all back together. And with the grace of God, the auricular grafts, I rebuilt the dome on the right side and the lateral cartilage on the right side, putting a radix graft. It took me an hour to take out the scar tissue underneath the skin. It was so thick and heavy and boggy. Wow. But damn, the cheating come out looking like really nice. But it took 18 months. And I can tell you that for the first few months after this happened, having her come back into my office with this virulent infection right, raging, uh, the staff was like desperate. I mean, to see her, you see her at the end of the day, we would gown up and drape up just like people were doing for COVID. Wow. Because it was like, you know, almost like Ebola. Yeah, yeah. Because we didn't want this in our office, giving yeah. it to anybody else. So after she went home, closed the office and sterilized every surface, walls, rugs, and this went on for weeks and weeks. We're very trying on my staff that way. Very trying as an energy suck on me. Yeah, yeah. Because all I could think about was this case for month after month after month. But it did work out in the end. But I don't wish that on anybody. Yeah. Ever happening. Sure, that's that's quite something, eh? Yeah. Goodness me. Um, I'm going to sidetrack for a second there and ask you. So it, it, did change, it, did change, it changed my practice. Though. So every patient after that gets me piercing in their nose morning and night for five days before surgery and then washes their entire body with chlorhexylene glutinate either the night before surgery or the morning of surgery. We've had no more MRSA infections. Wow. I get them to wash their face and their hair the night before in the morning of surgery, but I haven't put the antibiotics in the nose yet. Um, do you, can I ask the question, do you routinely then discharge them with the antibiotics as well or not? I used uh, just some Keflex for like the morning of surgery and the next day and that's it. Okay. Yeah. I don't use long-term antibiotics. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Okay, um, so sketch the scenario. Someone who wants their hump taken down a little bit, not but not completely. So uh, how, how do you really do that? Common. They, they want to keep us, have her remain a small hump. Right. So that's common. It's like not unusual. And I tell them, look, I, I can do that. I can leave a little bit of a bump. I think you'd look better with your nose straight, but I can leave a little bit of a bump if you're worried about your ethnicity being changed. Then I tell them, Except for one person, with one exception, every patient that I've left a little bit of a bump left uh, after surgery has come back and wanted the bump taken off. Okay. So I said, I'll do that and take it off. But I got to tell you, that's not part of the first operation. And if I want to go back and take that hump off, it, I recommend it stay. It's another operation, and there's a surgical fee for that. And more or less, everybody says, okay, take the bump off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm happy. <laughs> okay, so another question I have for you. What is your single favorite part about rhinoplasty? I I think it's the, uh, there's two parts. I, I love it at the end of the operation. Everything is done and said. I step back. And what I love to do is I ask my Imelda, my scrub nurse, I'm very fortunate I'm in Manhattan right here, that the people who helped me, People have always helped. Melda, Filipino nurse. I mean, I I just put my hand out. I don't even tell her what I want. She puts the instrument in my okay. hand. But I always give her the final go-ahead. I, you know, I say, Melda, are we done with this operation? And 99% of the time, she'll look around and she'll give me thumbs up. Yeah. But every once in a while, she'll say, you know, yeah. there's a little irregularity. And so I said, yeah, Melda, you're right. So I put a little bit in, a little more morsel graft. A little bit more with it. So I love doing that. That's great. And, uh, and then the other part that I really love, 
is taking advantage of. I love taking that sprint off and having a responsible patient. I mean, it just reinforces everything about rhinoplasty and how thrilling it is to see people's lives change so yeah. dramatically yeah. when everything psychologically and yeah. anatomically changes for the better. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So I want us to to kind of move a little bit towards talking about, because we, we'll have listeners who, who are not necessarily surgeons, but patients or uh, hoping to be operated one day. Before we get into that, yeah. what do you do to take time off? How do you manage to get away from rhinoplasty um, during the day or during your life? Oh, well, I, like a, I have a home in Connecticut that I love spending some time when, when it's nice out. I love doing some gardening. I love taking cooking classes with my wife. Uh, I love walking along the Connecticut shore. I love ballroom dancing. Wow. About 12 years ago, my wife called me into a studio and said, you're going to take ballroom dancing lessons. And I, that she remembers, <laughs> I said to her, you know, I don't know. I was in the elevator going up. I said, I have some pain in my left arm. And she said, why? Just tell me why you, where you want to go for your heart attack because you're going to take these ballroom dancing classes. <laughs> and I, I hated it at first, but now I love it. I've been taking it for about 12 years. I don't know if I'm any better, but, I, but it's a lot of fun. So it's really engaging. So I love doing that. And the other thing I really love is photography. I've been taking, carrying around a camera ever since the 1970s. Wow. So I've been, I'm a New York street photographer. I've taken pictures in other parts of the world. I love doing botanical photographs. Actually, I'm a published photographer. The, uh, Garden Design Magazine here in New York. Wow. I'm the cover with my, with my, my photographs. But I've been, I usually kept them to myself in the archives. I go, I look at them like my stamp collection. Yeah. But recently I've been publishing these on uh, Facebook. Yeah. If you friend me, you can see some of my work once or twice a, a month. I put a, one of my photographs on. So have and, you uh, ever, have you ever been on a, on a safari in, in South Africa or in Africa to take photographs? I, my pictures are really different than what you think. I mean, everybody takes pictures in safari, yeah. mountain climbing, sunsets. Mine are like interesting pictures of things happening just for a spare moment on the street, whether it's somebody else taking a photograph of something, trying to get 400 balloons into a taxi, and, you know, everybody's like laughing because they can't get it in. Ski jumps, and people are like, you know, midair. So they're, they're different kind of interesting, some funny those very, very poetic phot photographs. They're different than standard tourist photographs. Yes. Uh -huh. uh, and I do like a lot of botanical photographs. And that's, I like micro, microscopic views of parts of flowers and different trees and bark and branches and things and making sort of artistic. That's great. We we've we fortunately have a little game farm just outside the city we live in in Port Elizabeth, and there's nothing nicer than taking your camera and walking around and just taking photographs of the flowers. It's it's astounding how much you can see just on the ground and little insects. And, oh, it's amazing! Yeah, it's wonderful. The thing is about photography, you know, the iPhone is nice, but to get it up in position and get it on camera and. It doesn't work as good as a regular camera. No. So I've always carried a camera around my neck so that it's immediately available because something will happen in front of me in a split second. And if I didn't have the camera in my hand, yeah. ready to go, I couldn't capture it. Oh, that's lovely. Okay. So let's touch a little bit about going to the space of patience and, and some of the, the important advice you would be giving out to somebody who's listening um, and to colleagues to help them with with advice my, to patients. My uh, staff tell me that sometimes I spend too much time with the patient, but I don't think you can spend too much time with the patient. So after we've established what I'm going to do with the rhinoplasty patient, I spend you know a good 20 minutes telling the patient what we're doing, what's going to happen like two weeks before surgery is required, what's it like going into the outpatient facility, what's it going to be like in the operating room, what's it going to be like taking the bandage off, it's going to be like a week after the surgery, two weeks after the surgery, three weeks, four weeks after the surgery. 
So they have a whole spectrum from my point of view of what's necessary to get a good result. And that I'm always available if there's any questions mm. to tell them and guide them along the way. Mm. And, okay, then what do you do differently in your consultations, perhaps? I would say my consultation is probably like nobody else does a rhinoplasty consultation. It's 101 rhinoplasty consultation. What do you want? What do you want me to do? What don't you like? Yeah. So I see the patient. I get it. I get a vibe from them, and I talk to them a little bit, and then they, they want to tell me what it is that they're there for, and I stop them. I say, like, I don't want you to tell me anything. I'm going to take a long look inside your nose, at the outside of your nose, and then I'm going to tell you what I think, and then you're going to tell me what you think about what I think. And basically, I'm just looking at their nose and putting my finger over it in a mirror, showing them what I like, taking the cotton tip applicators and showing some narrowing. And invariably, they say, that's amazing. How did you do that? You read my mind. Yeah. And without them telling me a word about what they would have done, I've told <laughs> I've told them what they need to have done. And there's a connection that's like unbelievable. I mean, they're ready to go out and book the surgery because I've read their mind. Wow. And all I've done is just have told them what they're going to tell me anyway. Yeah, yeah. So it's a lot different. But the way I do it, I think, really establishes a patient-doctor relationship that's really solid and different than having them just say, tell me what you want done. That's fascinating. Sure. But now I'm sure there must have been some very funny moments um, in the consultation time over these years that you've had. Any stories you can think of? <laughs> One of the most interesting ones, a lady came in for rhinoplasty. I'm giving her an informed consult and informed consent and uh, got everything down and I said, are there any questions? She said, yes, doctor, I have a question. What's the worst thing that can happen during my operation? And I said, well, let me just think for a second. I said, I think the worst thing that can happen during your operation is that I could die. <laughs> she thought, <laughs> which for me, it's true. But she thought that was hysterical. And she just went out and booked her operation. And everything's fine. <laughs> That's so funny. <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, some, they say what's the worst I say you can die but now it's actually quite funny to say I can die because then you're in trouble yeah. <laughs> oh that's lovely eh? um, sure okay so I, maybe I did most of my up until COVID I did 90% of my operations under local anesthesia with intravenous sedation really eh? um, yeah now you know it's a talent to do that but just in and out like one after another after another but I've got it down. It's a, it's a, you've got to have confidence you can do it. And it's a science to it. But it's just a beautiful way to do these operations. The only patients I can't do that on is number one, if somebody originally comes in and said, look, I, I just, I just want general anesthesia. I don't want to see, but I don't want to know anything. And then I don't try to talk them into it. Okay. Uh, if I see a male of 25 to 32 years of age and they're just, they're sweating profusely while I'm talking to them, they're almost fainting. I know that I probably can't do that on the local. Yeah. Or if somebody has ADD or ADHD, because you never know what the sedating drugs are going to do to these people. Most people, you know, you have, you give them Phenergan, Demerol, and a little bit of Versid, and it's extremely predictable. Yeah. But with a patient with ADD or ADHD, they can come off the table. So mm -hmm. most people I do it at general anesthesia. Oh, wow. And one of the interesting things... Like, how do you know a patient has ADD or ADHD if, they, if they're not diagnosed? My wife And my wife figured this out years ago, and it's true in every case. You ask them, do you cut the labels out of your T-shirt? And every patient with ADD or ADHD will reach back immediately, and like, like there's something bothering back. Like, oh, yeah, I cut all the labels out of my T-shirt. And if you go back, they all have ADD or ADHD. That's she good. figured it out on her own. Yeah, so... <laughs> That's so what you can tell. Yeah, that's lovely. Eh? Sure. Um, 
I, I, okay, so I, I want us now to start talking about a little bit more like on the professional side of things um, to the colleagues who are really listening in on this. And I mean, you're, you're a legend in the world of rhinoplasty, but within rhinoplasty, what is it that you like the most about teaching in rhinoplasty? I know we've got you on the, the endonasal rhinoplasty month, as it were, um, but I don't want to box you into that. But what's that one thing that you really enjoy the most about teaching? I love that experience right in the operating room. The fellow's there, the resident is there, maybe visitor's there. They haven't given the anesthesia yet. My photographs are up on the wall. My diagrams are up on the wall. It indicate like every part of the nose that needs to have something done to it. And then on the bottom, everything I'm going to do about all the problems that I'm seeing above. And presenting that to the resident and the fellow, having them interact with me, and yeah. look at the patient, look at my, my suggestions, look at the pictures, and getting that complete universal picture of what needs to be done to make this a beautiful, beautiful nose. I, I love that finality of the whole thing. You know, everything comes together. And now we do the operation and accomplish the goal that we've tried to achieve. That's that's so interesting. And then at the same time, do you would you make them aware of what the pitfalls are in surgery and the way how to avoid those? Well, the, uh, the pitfalls I can be they can be psychological and they can be physical. They're two different categories. Uh, the physical part is that you have to try to avoid patients where the probability of improvement is extremely low. Normalcy thick skin, poor projection, things we, we try to work on those now, but they're still difficult operations to achieve. The most, most supreme example of patient selection came out when I was a, a resident at the University of Illinois. And one of my fellow residents got a chance to go see one of the senior surgeons at another hospital, watch his operation, and then go back into his office for his consultation period. And before he went into his office, he went through the waiting room, he went to his office, and he stopped and he looked at maybe eight or nine people that were in his waiting room. And he went around and he would say, I'll do you and you, I won't do you. You three I'll do, I won't do you, and I'll do you. And the people that he said he wouldn't do were like basically hysterical. I said, well, what, why aren't you going to operate on us? He said, well, I've seen you, and I'm not going to operate on you. And what he did was he picked out good skin, straight nose, mouths were closed with, with no breathing problem, a little bit of width. That if he had the face and the nose, it would fit into the operation that he did. It was a little excision of the cephalic margins, take the hump off, air the nose. Done. Amazing. And he had beautiful results. He was like Dr. Dockling in Chicago. Yeah. Everybody wanted to go to him. But he only did the patients he knew that he was going to get a fabulous result on and didn't even want to try getting a result on somebody wow. who was improbable. I mean, we can't do that today. No. Because the rhinoplasty surgeons coming out of the walls and the trees. Yeah. Everybody's trying to do cases. Uh, I did see a couple of his patients, not, not his patients. Patients that he rejected were done by other patients and didn't turn out so well. Yeah. So it, I guess in a way, it was right. Sure. That's interesting. One of, one of the, yeah. One of the most interesting cases I saw a few years after I was in practice was a man who came in with a secondary nose problem. Uh, he was a little, he was probably about 35, 36, totally younger than me. He did an operation about a year ago. Didn't like some of the form. It was a moderate deformity, not terrible. And I could address it, and I think I could fix it. And I told him what I thought I wanted to do. And he said, uh, and I, I said, what do you think happened? Surgery. And I didn't want to say anything bad about the other surgeon. I said, well, you know, what? I wasn't there at the operating room, so I didn't know what happened. Uh, so I can't really address that. He said, do you want to know what I think happened? I thought, oh, yeah. Tell me, he said, I don't think the doctor remembered who I was. Now, the reality is that he probably did remember who he was, but the perception was very important to me. 
that he felt that he didn't know who he was. Mm-hmm. For me, it was an impetus to change something in my practice that to this day I do. Mm. From that day forward, I brought all my charts home with patients who were going to operate the next day. And I called them personally between 8.30 at night and 9 o'clock at night, just for a few minutes. Just if they've had dinner before they go to bed, when they're getting most anxious about their surgery. And I tell them that I'm at home, I'm on my de- at my desk, I'm looking at your photographs, all of my illustrations and diagrams, and all my plans, and I've done all my homework. I'm ready for tomorrow. I'm going to bed early, get a good night's sleep, and I'll see you first thing in the morning. I can't tell you what that's done for my practice and for the patient's confidence because like everyone on the next morning will say, Come on, thank you for calling me last night. It was really comforting. I'm a little bit anxious, but now I don't feel worried anymore. Uh, it took you know, later all my anxiety. Even 20 years later, when a mother will bring a child, a child in for one lesson, she'll remember that I called her the night before surgery to make her feel good and tell her that I've done my homework. Wow. So it's something you can do easily in your practice. I mean, they know I've not been out drinking. I'm not at a party. It's not late. I'm not going to bed late. And it's very comforting to a patient. Wow. That's that's a little, little diamond that you shared there with us, a gem. Eh? Wow. That's so interesting. Eh? So, okay. So, I mean, I, I can, I'm starting to grasp this, the seriousness and the absolute thoroughness in your dedication to rhinoplasty. However, one more question I have is when things go wrong and you have complications, it, when we have those, what are the worst complications that you that you have, the ones you dislike the most? Well, the MRSA complication threw me for a, for, for a couple of years. It just bowled me over. Yeah. So I never want a MRSA infection again. It's just really scrupulous about everything in the operating room and watching people touch instruments or doing anything. And like I said, I use a, I use a puritan in the nose, the puritan twice a day, and the chlorhexidine complete shower. But I also worry, I hate like uh, ecchymosis. I mean, like really bad ecchymosis. And again, a few years into my practice, I noticed I had a patient who came back to see me a lot of ecchymosis, and then around a week after surgery, told me she had a little bump besides her nose. She came in on Friday afternoon, and this little bump was pulsatile. So I had a facial artery aneurysm, traumatic. So I opened it up, took out the aneurysm, and fortunately the scar turned out well. But I thought, you know, I think I'm cutting some vessels on top of the periosteum with my osteotome. So I began using a, free, a little uh, elevator, to a McEntee elevator, to raise the periosteum over the trajectory of the osteotomy site. Mm. So getting the, the periosteum and the vessels out of the way. And ecchymosis just went away. I mean, I can't tell you how any patient after that that had any, hardly any bruising at all. Wow. Sure. That's fascinating, eh? Okay, so... The guys who've been patient and listening now for almost 40 minutes, guys, we've got a special thing for you here. Um, I've asked Prof Norman to share a few slides of his contribution to rhinoplasty. Um, so this is, if you're listening to a podcast in one of the um, platforms, make sure you come over to YouTube and you can actually see see the slides as we go through them. So yeah, please, please share that screen. Well, I'm just going to show you some what I think is original contributions to rhinoplasty that I've made over the years. And the first is the dome binding suture. And this is the index case. And I want you to look at, the, this is an old, old slide from 53 years ago. And I want you to look at the slide where it's dated September, 1969. So this is my index case. This was a case that had enormous separation of the dome, almost a bifid nose, troubled me greatly. I had two plastic surgeons see her, and they, they didn't quite know what they wanted to do with her. Uh, so they came to me into the, into the operating room, and it changed my approach to primary rhinoplasty. I found the benefit of the delivery approach, the discovery of the dome binding suture, 
and the ability to manipulate the lower lateral cartilages. So severely separated domes of the lower lateral cartilages. There she is. If you look, there's almost a cleft between her domes on top. Mm. When I pressed on the tip, the domes just spread out like an inch away from each other. So I had only done one delivery at that time. Before we were all doing these intracartilaginous excisions, I delivered the lower lateral cartilages. And now they're, they're sitting there. I'm looking at the plastic surgeons, and they're looking at me, and they're like hunching their shoulders, and they just they don't know what to do. I wasn't <laughs> sure what to do. So <laughs> I'm going to just try something. So I took a clear 4-0 nylon suture and put it between the domes like this, and just started pulling together, pulling together, pulling together, and put a little knot in and I, even though I had the knot on the outside, they, it looked really great. I said, I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to try anything else. I'm going to just leave it like this. So to my knowledge, this was the first placement of a, a dome suture, which I called the uh, interdomal suture. Wow. And uh, so it, they, they say that if you think you've invented something new, that you should go back to Joseph's textbook on rhinoplasty and see if you can find it there because it's going to be there, but it's not in his book. So this was the dome binding suture. Every case after that, I put the, the suture in so that it was between the domes. Yeah. Just did a regular rhinoplasty. And then now if you look at it, it looks like when you look at it that the, uh, the domes are asymmetric, but they're not. If you look at the, the light reflex here, one is up and one's down. There's... So, but she, if you look here, the domes are symmetric. So it was a slam dunk. Now, it could have turned out bad, and it wouldn't have worked, but it did. It changed my life. So I presented this at a run-up, I think the first rhinoplasty meeting at Academy back in 1970. And before I got a chance to really publish it, I wanted to get four cases together. Everybody jumped on it and started talking about it and using it. So unless somebody can show me a slide before 1969, this was the first case of a dome suture. That, that is so that cool. Exists. That was six years before yeah. I was born. <laughs> <laughs> and these are just cases, you know, that I use the dome. I use the, the dome binding suture almost on every case in, in some position to narrow the nose. Now, one of my nemesis was the extremely underprojecting tip, like this, where when you push in the tip of the nose, the cotton mill actually buckled up and down vertically. Mm. Uh, really difficult problem. I tried struts and other things. I was, not, I was not getting the kind of projection that I wanted. So I decided to use a, a long strut that incorporated the tip graft as well. I call it the cotton or tip graft. But the problem with graft grafts like this is that they show through the tip of the nose. So I had to find a way to put a massive projecting strong tip graft in, mm -hmm. but have it not show. So I shaved the tip down at the edge so that if I took it down thin, 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 I still had all this power, but the, the uh, sublobule was formed by a piece of curved cartilage. So it wouldn't show through as a graft, which would look like this. So take a nose like this, do a dome binding suture to start with, because I needed a base for the graft. Now, I put the dome binding suture in, but the feet of the lower lateral cartilages are still really weak. And if I don't do something extra with it, she's going to have a polybeak in three or four months. So I put this graft in. That's a huge graft. It's all the way down to the pre-max so I seal up everything in the nose, put all the stitches in except for the marginal incision on the right side. And I make a pocket in the intercurl space all the way down to the premaxilla. And then place the graft on top of the dorsum and then take the tip of it and bring it into that piece right there. So it's laying in the nose like that. Mm. So it's laying, it comes above the domes. Mm. And two little stitches to hold it in the midline. So you go from there to there, right on the table. I mean, wow. it's such a dramatic advance. <laughs>
wow. and they're just like that. And when was that? And in, in which true. which years did you did you do that? This is you can see the, the softness at the tip. It doesn't show us a projection. You don't see the the graft itself. Other cases with the buckling of the calumella. This guy here has nothing in his tip at all. It works great in these noses where all the lower lateral cartilages are excised. So was this also in the 1970s? The separator graph was another like accidental discovery in a case like this where the alar attachment was really elevated against its opposite side. I call this the hidden ala syndrome because it was a constant, it's all due to the hypoplastic maxilla, but the surface anatomy and the skin that's being created here, she has a, a hidden ala and also the, the tip is relatively normal, but it's shifted to one side. The alar attachment to the cell is like really different, several millimeters separated, a deep nasolabial sulcus, and we discovered an elevated commissure to a regular rhinoplasty. And then at the end of the case, in this case here, I was sitting looking at her on the table and not liking an elevated ALA and not really knowing what to do with it. Uh, so I made a, I said, I'm just going to try something. I made a big triangular pocket in the canine fossa through the osteotomy incision under, underneath the, uh, Periosteum and took the biggest triangular graft that I could find and just pass it in so that the base of the graft was right underneath the ala, put a suture in there, and immediately the ala, the ala attachment came down. So, I mean, the beauty, the nose looks pretty good, but the ala attachment, which was like really disparate now, is all the way down to the pulmonal. And I didn't even realize that I had straightened her mouth out because something happened with the zygomaticus muscle. I'm not sure exactly what it is. But my nurse noticed on the photograph, she said, you know, her mouth looks better. And I said, you know, you're right. When I looked at it carefully, I saw the, the alar attachments were improved, but the mouth looked better. And then in each case after that, the same thing happened. We got the ala down, nose straight, and the oral commissure came almost to like a normal position. So it's not part of a rhinoplasty, but the patient sure enjoy the look. Is that it's the ALR cell disparity taken care of by that graft. Hmm. And the last thing is the uh, buckling suture. I was having a terrible time with these extremely, extremely deviated septums. So a septum was over like this. To so do a septoplasty and try to get that back without taking the entire septum out, what could be done? So I wanted over in the middle. So I'd take and put partial thickness incisions on the concave surface. It would help start to straighten the nose a little bit, but there was nothing without putting splints in and nothing to hold it. So I used a suture, sometimes permanent, sometimes a chromic suture. You can see the pattern of the suture. You start tying that down, and the middle part of the suture starts pressing to the opposite side. Tie it down a little tighter, tie it really down, and it really opens that septum and puts it almost right in the midline. In this case here, I had to put a auricular graft in because she had massively avulsed upper lateral cartilage as well. And here she is at, uh, at five wow. years post-op. Wow. Here's one of my botanical photographs. Beautiful. Um, yeah, Prof, I don't really know what to say. It's been, it's been so mind blowing listening to you. And, and I just, uh, you know, the, I think the, the thing that strikes you most is just like your gentleness about it. You know, I, I think, um, in this busy world we run in and people just want to get results and run around and like be world famous on their own websites. It's time to just take a breath and, and, and reflect. So, um, I'd like to thank you on behalf of all the listeners around the world, uh, not just me, for sharing what you have with us. Um, it's wonderful. I mean, I, earlier today I interviewed uh, 
George Espinosa, who is in um, Bogota, Colombia, and he spoke so highly of you as well. And there's many people around the world. So genuinely, thank you for your passion. Thank you for going out there all those years ago with two head and neck surgeons and actually following your own path and see what you've been able to add to the world of rhinoplasty. Yeah, well, you're welcome. It was, it's been a great trip, a great voyage. I've liked it a lot. I mean, I know you want to talk about marketing. I don't, I don't do much marketing. I don't do Facebook or Instagram. Uh, but a thing happened to me last week, which made me realize I don't need marketing. I was coming out of my apartment building, which is a block from my office on Park Avenue. And I heard somebody saying, Dr. Pastore, Dr. Pastore. And I turned around, I saw this middle-aged woman. She said, I, I just had to talk to you. Uh, I just came from my internist for my annual exam. And he told me, he said, you have such a beautiful nose. And I, I said, Dr. Pastore, I get my nose 20 years ago. No. And Dr. Silverman said, Oh, yes, Dr. Pastor. He's been doing noses for a long time, but he still has the best hands in New York. And I'll tell you, I mean, <laughs> I thought I don't need marketing. I just warm up people like that. That's awesome. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, thank you again. Thank you for taking your time off. And uh, to the listeners okay. around the world, thank you guys for subscribing to this podcast and listening. Our journey continues in season two. We've got some really great speakers still lined up. Uh, but yeah, Prof. Norman, thank you. And uh, okay, you're we welcome. appreciate your time. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye.